congregation, boys and girls. Years ago, it happened in China that several Christian families were summoned by the authorities to give an account of their behavior. This apparently happened during the time when Mao Zedong was reigning in China. We realize that situation has greatly deteriorated again. But the story tells of a, a stunning event where the authorities had thrown a Bible on the floor and were commanding each member to pass by that Bible and to spit on that Bible. And sadly, several did. And then there was a girl, 10, 12 years old. When it was her turn, instead, she bowed down and she wiped the spittle off of that Bible. And as a result, they pumped a bullet in her head. They killed her on the spot because she so treasured the Word of God she could not bear to see how that word was being so evil treated. And so she bowed herself to wipe the spittle off that Bible. And so the question is for me, and for you boys and girls, and for us, would you have been willing and prepared to do that? Because let's be honest, and I include myself, we cannot relate to such circumstances. I don't think any of us have ever been in a situation where we were compelled to demonstrate our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then have to pay a price for it. And yet we know from an organization such as Voice of the Martyrs that statistically... Statistically, there are more Christians being persecuted in the world than ever before in the history of this world. As we speak, there are many to whom our text this morning would be so very applicable. So let's turn to Matthew 5 and read verses 10 through 12. Because ultimately, even though the word blessed occurs twice, it is ultimately one beatitude. It is a beatitude that kind of forms the capstone on whatever Christ has said. And there we read God's Word in our text. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And so what Christ sets before us in this passage is that Persecution is the world's response to true Christianity. And I want to emphasize the word true. Genuine Christianity will encounter the hostility of this world. 
And that persecution, first of all, is for righteousness sake. As we will see, that is a very important description of persecution. Secondly, persecution will reveal the Christian's true identity. That's why Christ pronounces them blessed. He says, when all of this will happen to you for my sake. And thirdly, it calls for rejoicing. Rejoice. Be exceeding glad. And actually in Luke it says, leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. And so persecution, for righteousness sake, it reveals the Christian's true identity and it calls for rejoicing. And so, congregation, boys and girls, you know that we have spent several weeks, as it were, painting for you that picture, that portrait of the Christian that Christ gives us in the Beatitudes. A passage of Scripture that is so profoundly important, so profoundly significant. It's a passage that functions like a mirror. Now, you know, when you stand in front of a mirror, the mirror is always truthful. The mirror shows you exactly who you are. With our, with our technology today, we can doctor up photographs and make us look more uh, favorable than we really are. But when you look at a mirror, you see who you really are. And so the Beatitudes function as a mirror. A mirror in which we are to look. And the question is, do we recognize ourselves? I want to emphasize again, as I've done, that all of these Beatitudes, all of these declarations by Christ, they all are intimately connected. In other words, when the Holy Spirit makes us a new creature, when He makes us spiritually alive when he cuts us off from Adam and he grafts us into Christ, these marks will begin to function in every true believer. We also saw how Christ arranged them in a remarkable order. We saw that they, we, we need to read them sequentially, that each, each beatitude is the foundation for the next one. Or we could say each Beatitude assumes the previous one. And so what have we learned by way of review? That Christ, with brilliant wisdom, sets before us what a Christian looks like on the inside, what is the inner disposition. Secondly, what that inner disposition produces over and over again, namely that we hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we hunger and thirst after the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but also what that will manifest in our lives when Christ gives us the essential marks of the Christian life, the essential marks of a child of God, whereby the child of God reflects the character of his heavenly Father. 
As you know, when we considered the last, the seventh beatitude, if you recall, boys and girls, it's not accidental that there are seven marks. You know what the number seven means in the Bible. The number means the number of perfection. So what this means is that Christ gives us a complete portrait, a complete picture. And we saw several weeks ago that the bottom line of that description is when Christ is saying, when you are a peacemaker, assuming all the other Beatitudes, when all of this is true, you will be a child of God. They shall be called the children of God. They shall manifest by their lives that God is their heavenly Father. Because as we saw, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker is ultimately a reflection of the character of God. And now comes the eighth beatitude. And the eighth beatitude is very significant in connection with the other beatitudes. Because what Christ, as it were, does, he frames the picture. He frames the portrait. As you know, you can have a, a nice photograph. You can have a nice painting. But if you find the right frame for it, and you place that photograph or you place that painting in, in an appropriate frame, that frame will bring out the beauty of that paragraph or of, of that photograph and of that picture in a most remarkable way. And so it is as if Christ, as the great teacher, as the great prophet, wants to, make un wants to make sure that we fully understand what he has said, that we fully understand what the nature of true Christianity is. And so he places it within the framework of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So what Christ clearly teaches us in this passage, that when you reflect the character of God, when these marks are true in your life, at least in some measure, I'm not saying that all of these marks will manifest themselves equally in the lives of God's children, but I do want to emphasize that in every true believer, they will all be there. And Christ is saying, when this is who you are, when you are a person who, as a result of having experienced the wonder of God's grace in Christ, having become the recipient of that righteousness for which we hunger and thirst through Him, and when that manifests itself in a God-like life, a Christ-like life, a life that reflects the character of God. You can count on it that the world will treat you accordingly. And so persecution is the world's treatment of the citizens of God's kingdom. You see, congregation, the world around us doesn't have a problem with religion. They don't mind if we are religious. They don't even mind if we go to church. As long as we leave them alone, 
as long as your religion, as long as your Christianity is no threat to them. The congregation, when I reflect on that, also for myself, I find that so convicting and I find that so troubling. I will confess to you that whenever I preach on the subject of persecution, I feel uncomfortable. Because the question that I ask myself, if this is true, and it is true, what Christ is saying, that those who manifest these marks, those who demonstrate themselves to be the children of the living God, they will be hated by this world. They will be persecuted. And I ask myself the question, why is it that they are leaving me alone? Why, are, why is our world leaving us alone? Because let there be no illusion, congregation, that our culture, our American culture, though it may have a veneer of religion still, but let's, let's not deceive ourselves that our culture is as hostile to biblical Christianity as any other culture in the world. And Christ is pronouncing those who encounter the hostility of that world. He pronounces them blessed. As you know, we have said before, uh, if we take all the Beatitudes, it is Scripture's ultimate, defession, uh, ultimate definition of what true happiness really is. So very contrary to what the Jews had expected, what they were taught by the scribes and Pharisees, so very different from what the world defines as happiness. Christ is saying, happy are those who manifest all these marks, and happy are those who, as a result of that, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That phrase is very important. So let me quickly say what, what Christ is not saying. Christ is not saying, blessed are those who are suffering from hostility because they are living a disobedient life, because of a sinful lifestyle. So Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4, verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, and here comes a real convicting one, or as a busybody in other men's matters. If you, if you encounter hostility for that reason, that's not what Christ is talking about. It also, he's also not talking about any hostility we may encounter because of a self-righteous and pharisaical attitude, a holier-than-thou, a better-than-thou attitude. He's also not talking about any hostility you may encounter because of flaws in your natural temperament. Because you may have a, um, uh, a tendency to fly off the handle, a tendency to explode, and as a result of that, you meet with opposition. We're not talking about that. Christ is also not saying 
Blessed are those who are suffering for self-defined righteous causes. Even what we would call religious activism. He's not talking about that. No, he's saying, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So what does Christ mean here by the word righteousness? When we talked about righteousness, when we considered the fourth beatitude, we already emphasized the meaning of that word. And we emphasized that there are two ways in which the Bible defines righteousness. Hopefully, boys and girls, you remember that the word righteousness has the word right in it. That which is right. So when the Bible talks about righteousness in connection with God, first of all, it means that God is a righteous God. Everything he does is right. But also that he requires righteousness from us to be in a right relationship with God, and to live a right life. And we saw that because of sin, we have all become unrighteous. By nature, we are no longer compatible with God. We come short of God's glory. We live a life that contradicts God's standard of righteousness. Now, Christ is saying here, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And here, Christ is talking about who are being persecuted because they are living a righteous life. Because they're living a life that conforms to the Word of God in every aspect. Blessed are they who are persecuted because they are genuinely godly. Blessed are they who are persecuted because their lives are a reflection of the character of God. And you see, a truly godly person, as defined by the Beatitudes, will be radically different from a worldly person. True godliness, genuine Christianity... Christ-likeness, godly living, will by its very nature contrast very, very sharply with the, unworld, with the ungodly world in which we live. And so what true godliness will do, it will expose ungodliness. I'm going to read something to you that I read in John Piper, who has a a sermon on this passage. And I thought it would be helpful for us to connect with what that means. How does the life of a Christian, how does godly living expose the ungodliness of the world? So John Piper writes this. He says, if you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excess eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. 
If you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness into sharp relief. If you are earnest, you will make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those who are around you. And that's why true godliness, and of course he's, he's, he is defining it in very practical terms, because true godliness will manifest itself in every aspect of our lives. And that's why true godliness, a life that reflects the character of God, will earn the bitter wrath of the religious and secular world. And why? Because it is a world that hates God. A world that does not want to be reminded of God. A world that hates the word of God and therefore hates those people who live that word. Who by their very actions and by their very disposition prove themselves to be a people of that word. Those whose religion is more than just notion, more than an outward veneer, more than a just going through the motions. Those whose godliness will manifest itself in every aspect of their lives. Turn with me to an important passage. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, where the Apostle Paul uh, underscores that. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. And here, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a bold statement that the Apostle makes here. But look carefully at the language he uses. All that will live godly. That's really important. It's not all who are religious. All who have some form of religion, all who go through the motions, no, who, who by the grace of God live a godly life, a godlike life, a life that reflects the character of God in Christ Jesus. That itself is worthy of a sermon because brilliantly the Apostle Paul connects that godly living with the relationship we have with Christ. And so really Paul here is really expounding what Christ is teaching in John 15 about abiding in him. There Christ teaches us when you abide in me, the more you abide in me, the more you will be like me. The more you abide in me, the more your life will reflect my character. That's what Paul is saying. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus, in, in union with Christ, abiding in Christ, shall suffer persecution. And then Christ describes for us in verse 11 what that looks like. How does the world persecute the people of God? How does the world relentlessly assault the true church of Jesus Christ as is happening throughout the world? I don't know if you, any of you are subscribing to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. 
But I always find it very convicting when I read that. Not only when I read what God's children are suffering today, what they are suffering presently because of their allegiance to Christ, but also when I read how those persecuted Christians remain true to their Savior, that in spite of all the abuse that's heaped upon them and all the suffering they have to endure because of their commitment to Christ and the confession of His name, how they persevere and how they do not allow themselves to be beaten down, but how they get up again and continue to be faithful servants and children of the Most High. And so Christ is telling His disciples, because now He focuses on, ye blessed are ye. Because Jesus knew what was ahead of them. He knew what His disciples would face when they would go out into the world in obedience to His commandment to preach the gospel to all creatures. He knew that He was sending them into this hostile world. And he's saying to them, this is what you will encounter. The ungodly will revile you. They will mock you. And they will persecute you. And the word for persecution is a word that could best be described as a, as a lion who is in hot pursuit of his prey. You've probably all seen that on video clips. A lion in pursuit of a zebra. That's the idea of persecution. They will come after you, Christ is saying. They will pursue you as an animal of prey pursues its prey. And you know countless examples in church history. But even this very day, think of what's happening in Nigeria. Where, where Christians are being slaughtered as we speak. And we think of the, the dreadful persecution that took place also during the Roman Empire. And lest we forget, let me just read something to you about what that persecution looked like as an illustration of what Christ is saying here. It says some of the descriptions of the persecutions of the early Christians are descriptions that will make us understand what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. All the world knows that the early Christians were flung to the lions or burned at the stake. But those were the easy kinds of death that they had to undergo. Nero wrapped Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them in skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pinches. Molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Red hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their bodies. Their hands and their feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. So things were not very nice in those days. The kind of persecution was the kind of persecution that rooted out the professors from the true possessors. I'm not surprised that Jesus would say, blessed are those who are tortured for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you read that congregation, and I include myself, we cannot even relate to that. I have never had to pay that kind of a price for my profession of the name of Christ. And yet, that kind of persecution may be just around the corner. I don't have to tell you that the hostility of our apostate Western culture is manifesting itself in most alarming way. They will revile you. They will persecute you. They will say all manner of evil against you falsely. And again, a very important qualifier. For my sake. That's it. That's the focus. For my sake. That's why when Christ stopped Paul on the way to Damascus, he did not say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He's saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Christ, in that statement, completely identified himself with his people. So in that way, we could say that as God's people throughout the world are being persecuted for their profession of his name, they are ultimately, it is Christ that Satan is after. It is Christ in that sense who continues to suffer in his body here upon earth. But again, it's for my sake. See, that's the mark of a true Christian. Those Christians that are being persecuted today and who are remaining loyal to the cause of Christ in spite of being imprisoned, in spite of being tortured, in spite of being reviled, they do so because the focus of their Christianity is on Him. They so love their Master that they are willing to endure all of this for His sake. So I ask myself, and I ask you, are you prepared? Are you prepared to endure all of this? It could be just around the corner. Are we prepared to endure all of this for his sake? Do we love our Savior that much that we are willing to die for his sake? And I recognize that when we think of that now, when we think of what we would do if a gun were put to our head and we were said, either deny Christ or you will perish. When we think about that now, we wonder, what would I do in that situation? And I also realize that when persecution comes, God gives his people persecution grace. Because it, was, it is by grace, by grace, that these people are able to endure this. But the fact remains, and we have to ask ourselves today, it's one thing to say you are a Christian. It's one thing to be a church member. But are you committed to Christ? Are you so committed to Him? Do you love Him so much that you are willing to endure all of this for His name's sake? Blessed are ye, Christ is saying. 
In Luke 6, 22, which is a parallel passage, so write that down. Luke 6, verse 22, in those verses, Christ addresses this as well. He says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And I realize that also in our own country, there already are subtle and not so subtle manifestations of this. I'm well aware that there are Christians who, in the workplace, are already encountering this kind of persecution. But I do think, congregation, if that persecution of which we just read, that happened in the Roman Empire, the persecution that happened as a result of the Reformation, think of all those true believers that were burned at the stake, that were executed because of their loyalty to Christ. And they were persecuted by the established church. Just like Christ was persecuted by the leaders of his day, the religious leaders of his day. Christ says, blessed are ye. Because, and of course I've been weaving that through the message already. My second point is that it's persecution that separates the precious from the vile. Because I wonder, if that kind of persecution comes to North America, if the ungodly who already are very much engaged in saber-rattling, if they prevail in our nation, I wonder what kind of effect that will have on the established church in North America. I wonder how many will then turn away when there is a price to be paid. It will separate the precious from the vile. Because when that happens, it's the true believer who will not be able to deny his master. It's the true believer who will be prepared to pay the ultimate price for the profession of the name of Christ. And so Jesus said in John 15 verse 20, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And of course, the ultimate expression of that hatred was the cross. The cross of Calvary. We see the most troubling manifestation of human depravity, of human hatred towards God. Because If there was anyone who represented God, it was Christ. He was God manifest in the flesh. It was God in Christ who walked among the Jewish people. And his presence exposed the enmity of the scribes and of the Pharisees, which ultimately led them to nail Christ to the cross. And Christ is saying, if they've done that to me, They're also going to do it to you. Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 29, For unto you, it is, listen carefully, it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
And so the reason Christ pronounces them blessed, who are persecuted for his namesake, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, he is saying, that will confirm that you resemble me. And the more we will resemble him, the more Christ-like we become, the more you can count on the world's hostile reaction to that kind of genuine Christianity. And so what Christ is really saying, he's saying, if this is what you experience for my sake, then being persecuted is really for you a, your badge of honor. We know that when God sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, he instructed Ananias to tell him that I will show him great things. He must suffer for my name's sake. Turn your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11 and I will show you what the Apostle Paul had to suffer for the name and sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, he says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God. Well, this is what Paul endured, beginning at verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, Try to let it sink in. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. This was real for the Apostle Paul. His entire ministry, he dealt, he dealt with this reality. Now turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 37. That underscores this truth as well. And so now we, after all of these individuals have been mentioned by the apostle, now he gives, as it were, a summary statement. Summarizing everything he has said in that chapter. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, probably a reference to how Isaiah died. Jewish tradition has it that Manasseh, who, before his conversion, placed Isaiah in a hollow tree and literally cut him to pieces. And were tempted. And were slain with the sword. Congregation. That's why this subject always troubles me and it haunts me. It haunts me. Then I ask myself, 
Does my Christianity, does my Christianity provoke the world to wrath? Or am I so like the world? Am I so conformed to the world in spite of my church membership, in spite of being a pastor, that the world does not see me as a threat? That troubles me. I want to read something to you uh, from Octavius Winslow when he, he deals with that subject in his day. He said, oh, what a snare to the Christian profession is the ungodly world. And is there not at the present moment cause for alarm at the growing encroachment of the world upon the professing church of Christ? We verily think so. And then he says this, and this is addressed to us, to me. What means this eager pursuit of wealth, this love of display, the extravagance of living, this conformity to the world in a hundred different ways, so conspicuous and so increasing among Christian professors. Wherein, but in an outward profession, do these avowed disciples of the crucified differ from the ungenerate, ungodly world around them? If these are true disciples of Christ, where are we to look for the worldlings? If these are worldlings, where are we to look for the true followers of Christ? The church in its worldly conformity looks so like the world, and the world in its religious forms looks so like the church, we are at times embarrassed where to look for the one or the other. But this amalgamation must not be. And that's it. That's what also troubles me personally. Is it that the ungodly look at us and they see that in so many ways we live just like them? They see that we pursue the same goals, except that we, they see us go to church on Sunday. But for the rest, we live like them, we pursue the same objectives. Is that the reason why the world tolerates us? I find that convicting. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm putting my hand in my own bosom. So it has been asked, it's not original with me, but this question, is there enough evidence to convict you and me as a Christian? Would there be enough evidence in a court of law to be convicted of being a Christian? Why is it that our world still leaves us alone? It may not be much longer, congregation. And I don't want to be a doomsday prophet. But it may not be much longer when this will become real to us that we will be faced with the choice of being loyal to Christ and then pay the price for it and deal with the consequences. Blessed, he says, are ye when this happens to you because of your love for me, when this happens to you for my sake, when you are being persecuted because you are living a godly, Christ-like life, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. How can you rejoice in that? And in Lucas says, leap for joy. 
Yet we know accounts of people who have experienced great persecution. If you've ever read the story of Richard Wormbrandt, what he went through in his prison, and how in his prison cell, being subjected to extreme forms of torture, he was able to rejoice in God. He's not the only one. There have been many, many others. Something else I found interesting that I want to read. As, a, as an illustration of this, talks about several English martyrs. What gave Roland Taylor and Bishop Ridley and John Bradford the impulse, listen to this, to kiss the stakes at which they were burned? What moved Obadiah Holmes after 90 lashes turned his back to jelly for Jesus to say to the magistrates, you have struck me with roses. They experienced the reality of this. They rejoiced and they were exceeding glad. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 verse 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. 1 Peter 4, 16, And if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. In Acts 5, verse 41, after the disciples had been arrested and had been abused, we read this, that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's what Jesus is talking about. Can we imagine ourselves in that kind of a situation? That we would rejoice? That the world comes after us? That the world hates us? That the world will revile us and persecute us? For his name's sake. And so they understood. The disciples remembered what their master had said. They realized this was indeed their badge of honor. Christ is saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he concludes it by again emphasizing this. This identifies the citizens of my kingdom. These are the real citizens of my kingdom. The real citizens are those who are willing to die for me. The real citizens of my kingdom are those who esteem me so highly that they will endure the enmity and the wrath of an ungodly world. He says, great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Christ is saying to his disciples and to all of his children, when this happens to you, You're not alone. There's a long line of my people throughout history who have endured all of this for my namesake. As if to say, if this happens to you, you are in good company. For so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. Oh, that reward. And that's what what is enabling today. What is enabling persecuted Christians to endure is they're able to look beyond it. By the grace of God to that reward that awaits them. 
That reward of God's favor. That reward which is ultimately God himself. That's why we read in Revelation 2 verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried or tested. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. This is the exalted Christ who is saying this. He said, be faithful to me, be faithful to my cause, be faithful to my word, even if it means death. And you know, we read in Revelation 20 how the spirits of the redeemed saints are praying, how long, Lord, how long, how long? And then it clearly states that there are yet others who will have to die as they did for the name and sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So congregation, may God give us the grace to be that kind of a Christian. That our Christianity will be that real that we are willing to be thrown into the furnace of affliction. That our Christianity will be be as real as it was to the friends of Daniel, who dared to stand up against King Nebuchadnezzar, who would rather die than to deny the name of their God, and who allowed themselves to be thrown into that fiery oven. That's how much they loved God. They esteemed God more than their life. Is that true for you and for me? That's what made Daniel loyal. He knew what they were after. The command that the king had made that if he prayed to his God, he would be thrown to the lions. And what did he do? Well, what do we read in Daniel? He continued to call upon his God, knowing what the consequences would be. And sure enough, it threw him in the lion's den. And I realize we don't have to pray for persecution. Let's be grateful that we still are able to come here unmolested. Yet we need to consider this. We need to ask ourselves, even now, how real is my Christianity? How visible is my testimony? How Christ-like is my walk? How consistent am I with what I profess? Because all, Paul says, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so, congregation, again, we have our homework. We have our homework. We are called, and that's the whole purpose of the Beatitudes. It calls us to self-examination. That's why I said in the beginning, Christ now puts those seven marks, he puts a frame around it. As if to say, I want, you, I want to make sure you really understand what I mean. And he brings out, he brings out the fullness of that portrait. He's saying, this is what I mean. That those who reflect those seven marks will be persecuted by a hostile world. 
than there have been many. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there have been many who have sang, who have praised God as they were tied to the stake, who were worshiping God as they were cast to the lions. So near they were to God, so convinced they were of the reward that awaited them. So I hope and pray for myself and for you that when persecution comes, that we will be ready for it by the grace of God. That we will esteem the name of Christ more than all that this world can offer. Like it says about Moses, who esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. For great is your reward in heaven. A tribulation of ten days. A brief moment of persecution which will land God's people on the shores of eternity and they shall forever be in the presence of Christ. So I ask myself, I ask you, congregation, is your, in my Christianity, is it genuine? Will it survive the furnace of affliction? And with that question, I want to send you home. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we bow our heads at this moment as we have heard the remarkable words of our Savior by which He, in an extraordinary way, compels us to engage in honest self-examination. And Lord, we know that left to ourselves, We would be like Peter and we would deny thee as he did at that moment. And we pray fervently, Lord, that by thy grace, should such persecution come our way, that we will be faithful to Christ, that we would rather die than to deny our master and enable us by thy grace to live such a Christ-like life that the world cannot but notice that we belong to Christ indeed. Forgive us our sins of this day and moment and bless us as we go home and return again later in this evening hour. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.